No mai, haere mai. Welcome to the Maxim Institute podcast. My name is Jason, and I'm the communications manager at Maxim Institute. This is our weekly short-form podcast. These podcasts are released in tandem with our weekly column and are a chance for you to hear in-depth from the column's author about some of the thinking that went into producing their final piece. Today we talk to researcher Natasha Borlas about her recent column. Natasha, welcome along to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Jason. It's great to be here. We are talking about your final column for Maxim, most recent one, While We Were Sleeping. It is very sad, but it's a it's a wonderful column about um, the project that you are going to, um, to Africa to engage in. Um, tell us a little bit about that because it leads into some of the pushback that you've received about this project. So what are you going to do? <laughs> Uh, well, other than uh, have the time of our lives traipsing across Africa with two small children, uh, we also have a project that we've been working on for a number of years. Uh, this project actually was born out of an interaction with a community in a place called Simanjiro uh, many, many years ago um, before I actually met my husband uh, while I was over there working as an anthropologist and there was a community who had severe health problems, uh, particularly for the young children and uh, women. And when we kind of delved into what the source of this problem was, you know, that the lots of problems with the eyes, uh, lots of coughing, uh, respiratory problems, uh, really came down to cooking inside mm. uh, without ventilation. Uh, and obviously I, I wasn't working in a capacity as an engineer or as a, uh, like a, a, a product designer, I was there in a very different capacity. And so when we actually nailed down this source of the problem, there wasn't really a lot that I could do to help. You know, we kind of talked about the fact that maybe cooking outside was a better option, but there are wild animals, both of the human and non-human variety. And um, obviously malaria is quite a, a serious problem for these communities. So being outside at nighttime is not a good idea for a variety of reasons. Mm. Um, and so there was that, that real tension then between safety of one kind and health of another um, and no ready means to resolve that conflict at the time that I was there. Mm. Then we fast forward a few years and I marry an engineer <laughs> uh, and we design a, pro- a product for a, a competition addressing this this question of, of how do you um, – how do you – not change someone's cultural practices. Um, and there's many reasons outside of the safety reasons, cooking over an open fire. Uh, it's the way that their grandmother and their great-grandmother did it. And that's mm. the way the food is flavoured. You know, we think about the fact that we add sugar to most things that we eat and we know it's not very good for us, but we do it because we really like sugar. And we like that, those flavours and we want birthday cake to taste like birthday cake. Well, there's a similar uh, impetus here where they want their food to taste like their food. And this is the way that they do that. Um, and so we try to design a product that is in keeping with their current priorities and their current style of living, but does resolve this, this issue of smoke inhalation. And we did that by creating a number of things, eventually simplifying it down to a freestanding smoke hood because these communities, they build houses, their mud and uh, stick huts. They have a lifespan of about five years they're not structurally very sound. And so you don't want the thing that you build 
to prevent the spread of fire inside a hut to be relying on the structural integrity of the hut, um, particularly over the years as that begins to deteriorate. So it's a freestanding smoke hood and chimney, very, very easy to manufacture, very easy to ship and very easy to move. When the hut falls down, you can take it and put it in the next one. Yeah. Um, so that's that's what we came up with. Yeah. And so how's the pushback being received around that? Like, So you've received some pushback, you say in your column, around the cooking practice itself or around the design or around the implementation? Yeah, a, f- a few things. I think one of one of the, the things with development is uh, trendy is what gets funded. Mm. This is not sexy. <laughs> it's not complicated. It's not uh, technical. It's a very simple solution to a, a very big but quite simple problem. Um, and so... We kind of have that pushback. This isn't innovative enough. It's not interesting. We can't photograph enough. this and put it we on the cover of a magazine, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, it's not cutting edge enough. Um, the other issue, though, is there's there's been this, the, they call it the clean cooking movement. It's been a number of years now, billions of dollars spent on it. Um, and they make these stoves that don't require using timber, essentially, or, or dung or whatever it is, not burning mm, fuel. Fuel. And there's a lot of arguments for why this is necessary, the biggest one being greenhouse gas emissions. They don't work. Yeah. They don't work because communities don't adopt them because the food doesn't taste the way they want their food Mm. to taste. There's also a lot of issues with the construction of the thing itself. So mechanically. They often break. um, they're They're not well produced. It's really hard to find the fuel for them. You know, it's... We're what do they what do they use as fuel? A variety of things, um, some sort of hard, like a charcoal substitute, um, but also mostly things like uh, methylated spirits or um, some other chemical yeah. burn. Mixture, yeah, they're supposed to be cleaner. Um, there's some question about what the side effects of burning those fuels mm. inside, but essentially, it's very hard to find those fuels, mm. um, and it costs money. It doesn't cost money. To go and chop wood, chop wood. Yeah. Um, so th- there's there's that side of it as well. So that that they find that generally within the first year of use, by the end of that first year, all the benefits have disappeared. Essentially, people stop using them mm. within the first year. Mm. So it's it's a it's a pretty it's a, it's a, a big sinkhole <laughs> of development. Yeah. From where we're sitting. Mm. Um, and I think particularly because it's premised on that that question of greenhouse gas emissions. Mm when the entire continental Africa is producing 4% of global emissions, yeah. it seems a little bit hypocritical yes. at the worst, actually quite awful, to be making people's lives harder in a place where it is already quite difficult mm. for the sake of this issue that has been internationally recognised but isn't deeply contributed to by these people. Mm. And so... With that, I mean, you say that they they produce only 4% of global emissions, but they actually are exploited for our own carbon footprint reduction as well. Absolutely. So we're trying to be greener by exploiting and, I guess, ideologically forcing on a continent something that's not actually their problem. Yeah. And and in some respects, it's a massive problem for them in that they are going to suffer the consequences of global warming. 
but it's not a problem that they're contributing to greatly. And the solutions that we in the West have become dependent upon, mainly that you know the the battery production, those resources come from some of the worst conflict affected regions of Africa. Mm. You know, that so you're talking- the um, so what you're saying is like we we generate solar power, we generate wind power, but those come and go. And so in order to make it consistent, we store that power in batteries. That's right. And where those batteries come from. Uh, or, or the components of those batteries come from is the a large of, part yeah. from you know if we talk about Democratic Republic of Congo, they produce seventy percent of the world, world's cobalt using so-called artisan miners, which just means people who are digging in the ground, digging in the ground without safety, often children, um, and that is a, a crucial element of lithium-ion batteries, which are the kinds of things that are e-vehicles, et cetera. Yeah, or anything that runs on a rechargeable battery, right? So our laptops, our phones, our tablets all run on this cobalt-powered lithium-ion battery that was artisan mined (laughs) in Africa. It sounds really trendy. It does, yeah. (laughs) Trendy. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) We're all about artisanal things here, aren't we? Um, The other thing that you talk about, so you've received some pushback for that and there's this kind of hypocrisy of we want to be green here, but you guys, we're going to force you to be green, even though you already are pretty green by the world's standards. But then there's also other, shall we say, foreign policy issues that we've kind of fallen asleep to. You, you say in the column that you can't find a map of Africa post-2019. Now, something happened in the world, 2019, <laughs> I'm trying to remember yeah, what, what that was is. It? Can anyone- <laughs> <laughs> that kind of put us all to sleep in some way, and we need to wake up. So what happened while we were sleeping? Yeah. Well, essentially, um, and this has been happening for quite a long time, the West has become increasingly dogmatic in what they require from African nations in exchange for aid. Mm. Uh, And that's everything from policy changes to, you know, we'll help you with your energy upgrade, but only if it's green energy, which we know in the West is not very reliable yeah. and not very scalable. Mm. You know, we're experiencing these problems of shifting too early to green energy. Um, and so when we say that, you know, we're, we're trying to keep Africa green, what we're actually saying is we're keeping African nations behind the ball in terms of reaching energy stability. Mm. Um, China and and Russia have cottoned on to the fact that the necessary minerals for these greening movements and for many other things. You know, Mm. Africa is rich in all sorts of resources. Um, They don't have to exchange, they they don't have to change policy. They don't have to change, you know, they're not worried about human rights or particular development goals. They just want those minerals Mm. and they're very happy to give the leaders of those nations in Africa what they want in exchange, mm. which is usually some sort of regime stability, which is the Russian mm. tactic in particular. Yes. We'll, we'll keep you in power if you give us priority of, access. Yeah. And then for the, the Chinese, you know, they've the Belt and Road, they've been very clever in providing um, infrastructure resources. There's a lot of ownership that goes along with that. So, you know, it's it's there's quite a few ports now and 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 road networks that are owned by Chinese companies that are quite closely tied to the Chinese government. Uh, and that's, again, in exchange for access to mineral resources. That's been growing. 
and particularly in the last couple of years, really rapidly. You know, it, the the French troops that were in the west of Africa that were maintaining peace there have moved out. The Wagner Group has moved in, mm. rebranded, mm. but that's who it is. Mm. Uh, and they're, they're, that's happening in a lot of different nations across Africa. And I think because the West has been very uh, distracted with COVID, but also because we're continually disengaged from relationships with people in those countries who know what they want and what they need, we're not willing to speak orders of priority. We kind of have our priorities that we want to impose upon them and that dynamic is really damaging to the relationships diplomatically so, across. Yeah, so rather than going to them and saying, what do you need? And they're like, we need energy to power this hospital. We're like, you can have energy to power this hospital but it's going to be really unreliable and... Um, it's the only energy we'll give you. And we expect you to change this government policy in exchange for that assistance. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of the problem. How might we go about fixing that? I mean, this is a complex issue, lots of multifaceted, probably multi-pronged approaches needed, but what's one thing that maybe New Zealand can do as a small nation but – who has a reputation of um, diplomatic neutrality, how might we help? Well, I think that that diplomatic neutrality is is a massive asset that New Zealand has. I couldn't move anywhere in, New Z- in East Africa without tripping over a Kiwi. <laughs> you guys have had a, a really strong presence there as, as missionaries and aid workers for a very long time. You know, World Vision New Zealand has very close links to World Vision in East Africa um, and lots of projects there have come through the generosity of, of Kiwis. And that's known, that, that's an, an appreciated context. Um, and I think that the biggest thing that needs to happen is probably more at a, a federal level, at a government level, um, an appreciation, an attitude change. Mm. First of mm. all, appreciate the strategic significance of this continent. It is very important. It's going to increase in importance into the future and we can't dismiss it. And then the other thing is to build relationships Re- genuine relationships. You not know, utilitarian. Not utilitarian. Yeah. We'll give you this in exchange for that. or But actually having relationships with people in these strategic nations that build understanding. And then out of that you can come up with creative solutions that work for both parties. At the very least there's a door open to have a conversation if access to particular minerals, for example, is becoming a problem, you have someone you can call, someone who knows that you genuinely care for them and respect them as opposed to this kind of (laughs) top-down approach to relationships. Condescension in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, mm. Oh, well, Natasha, thank you so much. A bit of a wake-up call for us. (laughs) As you say, get off the time to get off the couch. Um, So thanks for for being with us. Thanks for having me. While we were sleeping. My family and I are planning an off-road development tour, hashtag Chimneys for Africa, of the east coast of Africa. Start date, 2024. End date, to be devised. (laughs) Reawakening to the world beyond New Zealand has been, and I recognise the irony here, an uncomfortable process of introspection. At the end of the day, I just don't want to be bothered. I spent several years in East Africa as a younger person and I loved it. So my first thought is that age and stage of life probably answer for a great deal of this malaise. 
As comedian Michael McIntyre will attest, getting out the door with toddlers is hard enough. Will going doorless streamline things? I'll let you know. But as we have started preparing for life on the road, I'm beginning to think that the problem may be broader. We have been unable to find an updated roadmap for the continent of Africa that is newer than 2019, and I don't think this is a coincidence. My growing impression is that the West has lost focus on Africa, or at the very least is drastically out of touch with the nations and people comprising it. We have faced significant pushback to our project, which is designed to be consonant with current cultural cooking practices. We have been repeatedly told that soon the entire population of continental Africa will have access to reliable energy, even though energy security has actually decreased in several countries. Denouncing traditional cooking practices in a region that produces just 4% of global emissions and is currently being exploited for resources for Western greening is an unfathomable piece of hypocrisy. And this is the other dynamic that concerns us. The Democratic Republic of Congo alone produces 70% of the world's cobalt. This is a product essential for lithium-ion batteries. Yet at a time when New Zealand is deeply concerned with green energy, aid policy has become much more insular. Since 2019, the New Zealand aid program has had a particular focus on the Pacific Islands region, meaning that less than 3% of aid is directed towards African partners. At the same time, Russia and China now have strategic interests in nations on the African continent. Chinese companies own or run several key infrastructure holdings, including major road networks, mines and ports. And with the departure of French forces from West African nations, the Russian mercenary group Expeditionary Corps, previously known as Wagner, are rebranding as a regime survival package, offering governments militarily enforced stability in exchange for access to natural resources. Africa is strategically significant and will continue to grow in significance over the coming decades. The influence of less democratic states in the region leads to greater instability and human rights abuses, threatening global supplies of crucial minerals. Humanitarian incentives aside, New Zealand, and Western democracies more broadly, cannot afford to opt out of a relationship with African nations. It's time to get off the couch. Thanks for listening to the Maxim Institute podcast. If you'd like to hear more from us and keep up with the rest of our research and analysis of politics and policy in New Zealand, you can sign up on the homepage of our website to get our monthly forum email and invitations to future Maxim Institute events. You can search and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the team at Maxim, Matewa, goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.